guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful perspective on the scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to to others, for others, to others. Wait a second, you changed some words. We say study twice. I just realized that we say study twice in the intro. You After can't say 70 twi- episodes, you just <laughs> noticed that we say... T- I've actually never noticed that. There you go. You would be surprised. I don't know if we're going to make this a permanent change. Maybe you guys can weigh in. Have you ever noticed that we say study twice? And is it bothered you? We should just shorten you? it and say, sup y'all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then roll. And then like roll that. with it. Speaking of words, we had a really funny thing happen yesterday. And I'm sure this is just one of those funny life things that happens. Zach started singing and playing one of my favorite songs. This is one of those I I love John Mayer in college. I still I still actually love his music. And Zach was singing this song and I realized that I did not know the words to this song. I do not know how many times I had listened to this song and I didn't know the words to it. What was, I can't remember, you said it was Verdictless Life Mm -hmm. that he sings. And I thought it was, I don't even remember what I thought. I'd have to start singing the song, which which you don't want to know. And, but the best one of all, this just got us laughing. And then I I have to make fun of Zach for his. (laughs) For me, it was (laughs) was TLC's, I thought it said, I thought they said, don't go Jason Waterfalls. And I thought the whole song was about a guy named Jason Waterfalls. And I remember listening really (laughs) intently trying to figure out the story. It was when I was just getting into lyrics. And it just, it made no sense to me on what was going on with Jason Waterfalls. My friends and I would would sing, well not sing, we'd talk about the song. And And no, did you ever ask him like, so who is Jason Waterfalls? No, we just thought like, oh, that song, Jason Waterfalls. (laughs) No one realized you were mispronouncing it. That's, anyway, I just, that's just funny. My daughter, I was wishing I could remember because Isla was singing the wrong lyrics to a song just the other day and it was cracking me up. It's just funny. funny. I love it. I love it. Okay, let's get to the important stuff. This is Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. Uh, This is one of those chapters where all four of the gospel writers uh, line up fairly closely. Um... We are still in the last week of the Savior's life. In fact, we're entering the last day of the Savior's life. Our doctrine this week, in fact, we're going to do another two-part doctrine this week and next week, and it's a fitting one. We're going to study or briefly talk about the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ. This week, we just simply want to state what the atonement is, and that sounds really basic, but we get this wrong all of the time, and it's President Nelson that has most recently clarified it for us and corrected how we speak about this. Um, he said this, this is the talk drawing the power of Jesus Christ into our lives, is that a year ago, year and a half ago? 2017. 2017. And that's another talk linked in this week's Come Follow Me yes. as well. He says this, as Latter-day Saints, we refer to Jesus Christ's mission as the atonement of Jesus Christ, which made resurrection a reality for all and made eternal life possible for those who repent of their sins and receive and keep essential ordinances and covenants. It is doctrinally incomplete to speak of the Lord's atoning sacrifice by shortcut phrases such as the atonement or the enabling power of the atonement or applying the atonement or being strengthened by the atonement. 
These expressions present a real risk of misdirecting faith by treating the event as if it had living existence and capabilities independent of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. A little bit later on, he says, There is no amorphous entity called the Atonement, upon which we may call for succor, healing, forgiveness, or power. Jesus Christ is the source. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago listening to um, President Oaks say almost the exact same thing. And it was listening to him talk that I finally caught on that when the brethren, and you mentioned this just barely, that Mm -hmm. when, when prophets, apostles, church leaders talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ, they say it like that. It is the atonement of Jesus Christ. They don't refer to it as the atonement, and President Nelson says we shouldn't either. Um, President Oaks, this is strengthened by the atonement of Jesus Christ, said this, Because of his atonement, the Savior has the power to succor, to help, every mortal pain and affliction. Sometimes his power heals infirmity, but the scriptures and our experiences teach that sometimes he succors or helps by giving us the strength or patience to endure our infirmities. That line that his atonement enables him to succor or to help us appears all over in this talk, and President Nelson brings it up again. Wait, so, oh, saying his atonement, right. referring to it the as The atonement his. of Jesus Christ. And that's, that is the doctrine. The atonement, the word atonement is describing an event in history. It is something that Jesus Christ did that he began in the Garden of Gethsemane and finished on the cross at Golgotha. It is an event just like World War II or World War I. So when we say the atonement, uh, as President Nelson says, there's no cloud or amorphous entity of atonement floating around upon which we call for strength or help. Um, It's not the atonement that helps us. The atonement is the name of the event that Jesus Christ did so that he is enabled to help us. So it's not the atonement that saves us, it's Jesus that saves us. It's not the atonement that strengthens us, it's Jesus that strengthens us. The atonement does nothing except it enabled Jesus to be our Savior. It enabled him to be the one that reaches out to us and helps us. I think this, I love that talk from President Nelson a lot because I think he emphasizes that, that when we don't give credit or when we don't include Jesus Christ in that description, um, it takes the power away from our relationship with him and the real understanding of of what he does for us. I can't remember if it's President Oaks or President Nelson that references Alma chapter 7 in their talk, but it's one of my favorite descriptions of the Savior's atonement and a famous one that most people I think are familiar with. Um, It describes what the Savior did in his atonement, that he took upon him sufferings and pains and afflictions and temptations and sicknesses. And then in verse 12, it explains why. It says, He will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that he may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. In other words, Jesus Christ did what he did so that he has empathy and power to be able to comfort us, sustain us, and even save us from what we go through. With that doctrine clearly understood, we want to introduce this week's study by actually playing a brief clip from Elder Holland. 
Uh, I believe this video is linked in the Come Follow Me curriculum as well, and it is a must watch. We're going to play the first minute of it, and we may revisit it at the end of the episode later on, but Elder Holland sets up this week's study perfectly. So here you go. As a final and specially prepared Passover supper was ending, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his apostles, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. This do in remembrance of me. Since that upper room experience on the eve of Gethsemane and Golgotha, children of the promise have been under covenant to remember Christ's sacrifice in this newer, higher, more holy, and personal way. I think it's President Kimball that once said that the most important word in the English language uh, by his estimation, is the word remember. Um, what we want to do this episode and next episode, Elder Holland explained two facets of the Savior's atonement, or would go on to explain those in his talk and in this video. Um, the spiritual suffering that the Savior went through, that we remember when we drink the cup, and then his physical suffering when we take the bread. This week's study is focused on the spiritual suffering. Next week's study is focused on the physical suffering. What we want to do this week in this episode is, if we are truly to remember him when we take the sacrament, and hopefully at other times as well, what are some things we should remember? What is it that Jesus suffered spiritually that when we're partaking of the sacrament or when we're pondering him and his ministry in our daily life, that we should remember. Just a general theme as I studied, and I, I guess you can't really call it a theme in these chapters, but just as I read the story this time, something that stood out to me, or maybe just that I felt as I was reading these chapters, was kind of that um, foreboding feeling coming from Jesus as he taught. Um, he knew what was going to happen, and he was trying to explain and tell his his disciples and his followers what was happening. And so what stood out to me was um, the story of, of the woman who, it says, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. This is, sorry, this is in Matthew 26, starting in verse um, 6. So she comes to him with this very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head, and as he was reclining at the table, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked this might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Um, and Jesus kind of rebukes them and says, Don't judge her. This is what she wants to do to serve me. And he says, Um... You always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. 
I guess this feeling of um, him trying to get the message across to his his disciples and trying to let them know, no, this is okay. And I think of that woman um, almost offering comfort to him hmm. um, as he prepared. I, I think sometimes we think of all of this, and of course it did happen in the garden, but this time as we focused on the spiritual side, I thought of these feelings that he was having as he knew it was happening that night or coming up very soon that he was he was feeling these feelings of um apprehension and mistrust and all of these things that that so that we feel these yeah. spiritual sufferings that we have as well in this I don't know does that is yeah, that making no it makes sense, sense because way? we we focus on the event as as we should but what you're saying is he knows what it feels like to prepare for or to be nervous about or to be anxious about a big event that's coming up something that he doesn't want to do but has to be done he knows even what that feels like and i i liked the story of the woman and reading it in this sense this time because i felt he he needed comfort mm -hmm. he knew what that felt like and thought this this is something good for, or i don't know i'm putting words into his mouth which i don't want to do but Hopefully that message is yeah. something that he he needed that, yeah. like we all do. The one that caught my attention this study, and again, I was helped along by a different talk from Elder Hall, and this one a little bit more recently, the talk None Were With Him, was Jesus's decreasing circle of companionship the closer and closer he gets to the atonement. Um, he has, before the Passover meal, um, gained quite a few disciples, but also lost quite a few disciples, um, especially at times when he had to teach doctrine that was hard for the people to hear. So he knows what it feels like to be unpopular. Then he goes to the Last Supper with his 12 apostles, and of course Judas betrays him. Um, this is maybe a stretch, but I have heard some people um, guess or think that Judas might have in some way been related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, um, even that he could possibly have been a brother. I don't know if that's true or not. If it is, it means that Judas has had Jesus stay in his house or in his family's house. Even if it's not true, though, he is, of course, one of the inner circle of the Savior, someone that uh, has been trusted, someone that Jesus has taught intimately. And interesting to me is uh, before Judas's betrayal, Jesus washes, as we mentioned last week, washes the feet of the 12, not the 11, but the 12. So this is someone that Jesus has had an intimate relationship with, and he is betrayed. Then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. But of course, they can't stay awake with him. Um, and then there's that moment between Peter and Jesus where Jesus tells Peter, even you will deny me. Even you will turn from me. Um, the most heartbreaking of all, and this is next week, but if I can borrow a little bit, is that line on the cross when Jesus says, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, I can't remember if it's in that talk or in a previous one where Elder Holland mentions that for that brief moment, 
both in the garden and on the cross, even the Father had to remove his presence from the Son so that at least one person in all of human history knows what it feels like to be completely alone. You and I will never, ever know what that feels like because we will always have his companionship with us. Even if everyone else we know turns against us, we have the Son, we have the Father, and we have the Holy Ghost who are constantly with us and whose presence is with us. But there had to be someone who knows what loneliness feels like. And the only way that he can feel what loneliness feels like is to have his friends stripped away or turn against him and to have the Father even remove his presence from him so that Jesus can know what it feels like to feel forsaken and forgotten and alone. And so in addition to all of the things that he suffers in the garden, um, the fact that he knows true loneliness has always been comforting to me because he knows something that I never will know and therefore can help me to make sure I don't ever have to feel that. And speaking to that story a little more, um, and maybe this is some scriptural reference to what I talked about earlier of those feelings before he was actually in the garden, because it says that he walked into the garden in um, Mark 14, and he told Peter, James, and John with him, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Mm. What are some of those other feelings he was maybe feeling like mm -hmm. we talked about earlier, that nervousness and anxiousness? And he says, you know, wait here and stay awake, please, while I pray. He just wanted someone to be there with him. Um, and then he comes back and he says, couldn't you just stay awake for one hour? And the disappointment too in that, you know, you can feel that as well. Um, I think it's Matthew and, that says he was he was very heavy or began to be heavy. Maybe that's Luke. I can't remember. Yes. Oh, okay. I like that. But those feelings. That feeling of, yeah, I don't need to use more words. They're there in the scriptures. Um but here in verse 38, so Mark 14, verse 38, he says, um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think we see this in a few other stories as we go along. And even in the story of Jesus, um, when he asks the father, and I'm going to read in Luke 22, but he says, father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His spirit is so willing, but he feels that weakness in the flesh. And we see that story. I mean, he says that to his disciples sleeping. And then we see the story. I, I even think the story of Judas Iscariot. You know, he was a, a 12 apostle. He was, he was a follower of Jesus. And like you said, possibly even a dear friend of Jesus. And he... um his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. And, and don't we know that feeling mm -hmm. and that, that idea of the, of Peter, um, what really struck me was Peter in his denial. He denied it. He denied it. And then at the end of all of the accounts, he broke down and wept. How often do we feel that when we make those mistakes or when we do something that our spirit wants to do something so bad, but our flesh is weak. We want to change but our flesh is weak. And what I learned in these chapters is that Jesus knows what it feels like um, through him asking the Father, can you, can you please just remove this from me? Because my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And I know what it feels like now when 
my brothers and sisters feel feel their their weakness makes me think again it's he does something that often we don't have to do when we feel our spirit strong but our flesh weak we can rely on him for strength yeah but he didn't have someone else to rely on for strength he has to pull through and push through that atonement on his own he has to overcome the weakness of the flesh on his own again so that he's empowered to be that comfort and that assistance for us when we feel weak like you said even the father had to withdraw from him and i i don't know that that's powerful those those type these feelings are feelings that we have these spiritual um Groanings sufferings and sufferings and, yeah, yeah. yeah you know i i um i love the word that Jesus uses, and I've often illustrated this um, with a simple cup where I've filled the cup up with water. And as I filled it, just asked um, people to name, as we read in Alma 7, for example, name some sufferings or temptations or infirmities, let alone sins. Of course, he suffers for the things that we did wrong, but he also suffers for our pains that come because we didn't do something wrong. So name some. Just think of your sufferings. Think of your temptations. Start filling your cup up with all of the things uh, in your current life, let alone your past and not even talking about your future. And you start to sense the immensity of your cup. And then there's an interesting physical object lesson if you will to kind of illustrate this if you have someone else grab that cup and they hold it to the ceiling and you grab a pole and use that pole to hold the cup to the ceiling then you're frozen i've seen teenagers do this to their parents in a mean kind of way not as an object lesson but just as a prank it's not what we're talking about but if you're standing there with your pole holding your cup up it's on the ceiling and you can't let drops out of the cup you can't spill it so you end up having to hold that cup up forever. There's no way to get it down. There is no human way to get rid of what's in that cup. The only way that you can get rid of it is if someone stands on a chair, takes the cup off of the ceiling, and gives you rest. Now the water's still in that cup, and so the way to get rid of the water then is if that person who took the cup off the ceiling is willing to drink that water. When Jesus is in the garden, I don't think it's a coincidence that every single gospel writer talks about the cup. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. In Doctrine and Covenants 19, the Savior will say, I drank the cup. And so this becomes such a personal study this week where we think, what are, what are, what are the moments in my life when I have felt foreboding? that Jesus can help me with? When have I felt um, lonely Lonely that he can help me with? When have I felt my flesh being weak? When have I just felt my infirmities and my weaknesses and my pains and my sorrows? And can I, instead of calling on the atonement to strengthen me, can I call out to Jesus Christ who can strengthen me because of his atonement? Well, to end, we want to uh, go back to that talk and that video from Elder Holland and just play the last little bit. Uh, he gives the challenge, I think, from this week's study better than we could. And so we'll end with him.
In the simple and beautiful language of the sacramental prayers those young priests offer, the principal word we hear seems to be remember. If remembering is the principal task before us, what might come to our memory when those plain and precious emblems are offered to us? And this shall ye do, and it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. Thank you for studying with us this week. Um, we hope that along with your study this week in these chapters that you will be able to remember the things that Jesus Christ has already suffered for each of us, for you. Um, and next week we look forward to studying the next part of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Thank you.